0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. On July 22, 1962, at 9.21 a.m. Eastern Time, NASA launched the Mariner 1 space probe to great fanfare. Less than five minutes later, the mission was forcefully aborted. According to NASA... The booster had performed satisfactorily until an unscheduled yaw-lift maneuver was detected by the range security officer. Faulty application of the guidance commands made steering impossible and were directing the spacecraft toward a crash. Eighty million dollars had been wasted, and that's in 1960s money, and the potentially historic flight came crashing to the ground. All because of a single typo in the code. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. This week's topic was voted on by our supporters at patreon.com yourbrainonfacts where for as little as $2 a month, you can get all kinds of bonus content and the ability to vote on upcoming topics. Now, a little peek behind the curtain here. Sometimes I'll have a topic idea and I think, oh, here example A, there must be many more I don't know about. And I start by Googling example A and I don't find any more examples. And that's kind of what happened here. But what I did do was just turn that left down the rabbit hole and followed it along to wherever it would take me. Now, in the world of grammar and writing, there are ample guidelines and rule sets in varying degrees of pedantry. Most of them don't really matter in the grand scheme of things, except for the Oxford comma or the serial comma. Now, full disclosure, the Oxford comma is the hill I will die on. And there's a dairy in Maine that probably wishes their proofreader was as picky as me, after a casual conversation turned into a million-dollar lawsuit and changes to state law. A driver for the dairy company mentioned to a grocery store stockroom employee that he was working 12 to 16 hours every day. The stockroom worker said, as we seem programmed in retail to do, that, hey, at least the driver's paycheck must be really good with all that overtime. For those in other parts of the world who may be unfamiliar, that is supposed to mean for every hour you work after 40 hours in a week, you get 50% more pay. Nope, said the driver. He didn't get overtime. That's illegal, said the store employee. They can't do that. The law in question stated that workers don't get overtime if they are those involved in, quote, the canning, processing, preserving, freezing, drying, comma, I'm regretting saying these commas now, marketing comma, storing comma, packing for shipment or distribution of perishable foods. Milk is perishable, so that means the drivers don't qualify for overtime. Or do they? Cue the lawyers and your disappointed high school English teacher. While it's not a given, an Oxford comma can change the meaning of a sentence. I realize now I didn't define the Oxford comma very well. There are a number of style guides in the world that people rely on as rule books for professional or formal writing. The Oxford comma has been attributed to Horace Hart, printer and controller of the Oxford University Press from 1893 to 1915, who wrote Hart's Rules for Compositors and Readers in 1905 as a style guide for the employees working at the press. The Oxford comma is meant to come after the second-to-last item in a series or list, and it can determine really how many items there are. For example, the magazine headline, Rachel Ray enjoys cooking her family and her dogs. If I read it straight through without the pause like that, she sounds like a GD psychopath. But if I take half-breaths where the commas indicate, Rachel Ray enjoys cooking her family and her dogs, including the all-important pause before the and, you get the right idea about her hobbies. Much nicer, much more marketable. The question was that without the comma, packing for shipment or distribution of perishable foods did not mean the same as packing for shipment, comma, or distribution of perishable foods. Did the law mean packing for shipping or distribution or packing for shipment, or distribution. Without the comma, the lawyers said, the distribution part of the activity was part of shipment. Around $10 million in unpaid overtime hinged on that tiny speck of ink or pixels. The state of Maine has a publication, the Maine Legislative Drafting Manual, in which the use of a serial comma or Oxford comma is frowned upon. More's the pity for the dairy. After court battles and rulings and appeals, the dairy company finally settled. The five named plaintiff drivers each received $50,000, and others in the class action were awarded overtime pay for over 50 months of work. The law was rewritten using semicolons instead of commas to remove the ambiguity. And that's not what a semicolon is supposed to be for, but they want to be really, really sure the canning, semicolon, processing, semicolon, and on and on and on, packing for shipment, semicolon, or distribution of perishable foods. This wasn't the first time, nor would it be the last time, a comma was at the heart of a legal dispute. In Canada in 2007, two communications companies went to court over what has become known as the million-dollar comma case. Rogers Communications made an agreement with Bell Alliant to rent some of its equipment. After a couple of years, Bell Alliant realized they had made a really bad deal. They believed they should be getting at least a million dollars more out of the arrangement. When Bell Alliant asked to renegotiate the terms, Rogers Communications refused. It argued the deal was binding for a full five years and could not be changed earlier than that. So the two companies went to court over the critical clause in the agreement. This agreement shall be effective from the date it is made and shall continue in force for a period of five years from the date it is made, comma, and thereafter for successive five-year terms, comma, unless and until terminated by one year prior notice in writing by either party. The argument all came down to that second comma, the one after the word terms. Bell Alliant argued that the second comma meant that the final clause, unless and until terminated, applied to the entire agreement, not just the renewal period, and that they could terminate the contract before the first five years were up. The court eventually agreed with Bell Alliant's interpretation and ruled in their favor. The wicket gets sticky here because commas have two major functions. The one most writers are familiar with has to do with breathing and rhythm, This is something I'm keenly aware of in my workaday world as a voiceover provider. Commas show readers where to pause and catch their breath. That's why I'm a staunch holdout for two spaces after a full stop. Comma and one space for short pause, period and two spaces for longer pause. I know it's outmoded and I'm outnumbered, but I will fight you. But as I mentioned, a comma can also alter the meaning of a sentence. The second comma in the Rogers v. Bell Alliant case was clearly inserted to mark a natural pause. Everyone involved in the case seemed aware that the intention was for the agreement to last at least the first five years, and that Bell Alliant was just trying to find a loophole to get out of a deal they regretted. They were technically correct, the best kind of correct. Rogers' communication naturally appealed the decision, and the first verdict was overturned but for a uniquely Canadian reason. No, nothing to do with Good Manners, Poutine, or Letterkenny, pitter-patter. As with all such legal documents, the original contract was written in both of the country's official languages, English and French. The comma that was at the center of it all is a feature inherent to the English version. It wasn't and wouldn't have been used in the French version. Roger's communication was eventually able to argue but that established the intention of the sentence, and they finally won the case. These two modern examples aren't the most expensive case of a comma kerfuffle, though. That happened in 1872, when one misplaced comma in a tariff law cost American taxpayers more than $2 million. Doesn't sound like much, but adjusted for inflation, that's over $38 million today. After the Revolutionary War with Britain, the nascent United States sought to reorganize itself economically through the establishment of a national budget. The Tariff Act of 1789 stipulated that duties be paid on goods, wares, and merchandise to, quote, support the government. For over a century, these foreign import tariffs served as the primary source of the U.S. government's revenue, as much as 95% of the overall federal budget. Income taxes were an on-again, off-again thing until the 20th century. On June 6, 1872, the Ulysses S. Grant administration issued its 13th Tariff Act to reduce rates on many manufactured goods, hoping to get the economy back on track after the Civil War. But instead of raising money, it cost both the government and the people big time. This Tariff Act, like all previous acts, included a list of items that were exempt from this 20% import tax. Importers, always looking for ways to weasel lower fees on their goods, would meticulously scan the new tariff acts, hoping to discover a loophole. That came in the form of the phrase, fruit plants, tropical and semi-tropical for the purpose of propagation or cultivation. These were exempt from the tariff. Fruit was taxed, but the plants and seeds to grow fruit were not. The Tariff Act of 1870 had established a duty of 20% on oranges, lemons, pineapples, and grapes, and a duty of 10% on limes, bananas, mangoes, coconuts, and essentially every other fruit being imported. And fruit was a major import item. As such, its tariffs constituted a considerable portion of the federal budget. For reasons lost to time, or at least that didn't show up in my research, the 1872 revision had a comma inserted between the words fruit and plants, giving fruit importers the means of evasion they were looking for. It was supposed to be a hyphen, making fruit plants one word, but that's not what happened. A pluralizing S was added as well, though we don't know why or which change caused the other. The exemption now read, Fruits, plants, tropical and semi-tropical. Initially, the Secretary of the Treasury rejected claims for exemption on the grounds that the grammatical error was, quote, clearly intended to read otherwise. Importers, however, dug in their heels and took the matter to court. Repeatedly. In December of 1874, In December of 1874, Two years after the comma appeared, the U.S. government declared that, under the phrasing of the act, fruits had to be free of the tariff. It was their own document, and they had to uphold it. Duties that had been paid while the cases were being adjudicated were refunded to the tune of $2 million, or 1.3% of the government's total tariff income, .65% of that year's entire federal budget. Today, that would amount into the billions with a B, all because of a comma and some fruit.
1: I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Faceoff launches April 9th.
0: With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy As in the 2010 cookbook, The Pasta Bible, where one recipe called for salt and freshly ground black people, forcing the publisher to destroy the 7,000 copies still in their warehouse, though the book was already out in the world. Speaking of Bibles, when a book is printed as often and in as many versions and translations as the Christian Bible, there are bound to be some slip-up snafus, solecisms, and stumbles. The best-known example is probably the Wicked Bible, also called the Sinner's Bible or the Adulterous Bible. In 1631, King James I ordered 1,000 Bibles from an English printer named Robert Barker. It was only after the Bibles were delivered did anyone notice a small but significant mistake. The word not had been left out of the Seventh Commandment, so that it now read, Thou shalt commit adultery. Don't mind if I do. King Charles was not amused, and ordered the Bibles recalled and destroyed, took away Barker's license to print Bibles, and fined him 300 pounds, which is harder to translate to modern money, but was more than enough to put him out of business. Not everyone who had a wicked Bible gave theirs up, though, and there are still dozens of copies we know of today. Most are in museum collections, with one in Australia and the rest split between the U.S. and Britain. You can sometimes, though, catch a private collector selling theirs. They usually go for between fifty dollars and $100,000, which to me seems kind of low. But then again, almost no one bid on Mark David Chapman's notebook that he got John Lennon to autograph before he killed John Lennon. So I guess you never really know how an auction's going to go. Other notorious Bible-printing mistakes include the Fool Bible, whose printer was fined £3,000 for accidentally leaving the word not out of Psalm 14 and printing instead, The Fool hath said in his heart, There is a God. The Judas Bible from 1608, where some of Jesus' dialogue is attributed to Judas. The Sin On Bible from 1716, where John 8.11 is printed as, Go and sin on more. Well, if you insist. The Denial Bible from 1792, in which Philip, not Peter, denies Jesus in the book of Luke. This is apparently an important plot point, but as the daughter who got all the other kids in the family out of Sunday school and catechism, I have to take your word for it. But you've got to love when things get meta, such as in the Printer's Bible from 1702, where, instead of saying, Princes have persecuted me without a cause, it says printers have persecuted me without a cause. They're probably feeling a little persecuted themselves. Typos can cost a lot of money, and sometimes they're even on the money. In 2008, the National Mint of Chile misspelled the name of its own country on a series of 50 peso coins. More than one and a half million coins bearing the name C-H-I-I-L-E instead of C-H-I-L-E, were released into circulation, and incredibly, the spelling error wasn't formally reported for another year. As embarrassing as the mistake was, the coins weren't pulled from circulation and quickly became collector's items, though the head of the mint did get sacked because it did the government's image no favors. In 2013, some folks in Texas got a really cherry deal when a misprint in a Macy's mailer advertised a $1,500 necklace for $47. It was supposed to be on sale for $497. The necklace quickly sold out before the typo was caught, and Macy's was able to hang correction signs in the stores. We don't know the exact damage here, because Macy's has never disclosed the finances, and told us just how many people got that necklace 96.87% off. I guess even the discounts are bigger in Texas. In 2006, All Italia Airlines offered business class flights from Toronto to Cyprus for $39. This Canada to the Mediterranean flight usually costs $3,900. Around 2,000 travelers took advantage of the rate before the mistake could be corrected. The airline tried to cancel the tickets, but the buyers weren't having it. They'd purchased the tickets fair and square. To protect its reputation, Alitalia decided to cut its losses and allow the budget ticket holders to fly, at a loss, direct and reputational, of around $7 million. Up in the Big Apple, New York's Metropolitan Transportation Authority had to pull a quarter million dollars worth of subway maps after they were printed with the wrong fares. Those 80,000 MTA maps listed the pay-per-ride price minimum as $4.50 when it should have read $5. That doesn't sound like much, but when you look at the sheer volume of business the MTA does, that 50 cent difference really adds up. And especially embarrassing, these new maps were supposed to be printed to announce a rate hike. If you're in a smaller city say roswell new mexico you'll probably need a car of your own but don't expect to get one from roswell honda after a simple tried-and-true direct mail promotion went badly awry for reasons that weren't even the dealer's fault in 2005 the dealership decided to give away a thousand dollars as a grand prize via scratch-off tickets sent to potential buyers however the marketing company they hired printed off 50,000 tickets, all of them $1,000 grand prize winners, an error that somehow no one noticed. 20,000 tickets ended up being sent out, meaning they had 20,000 disappointed potential customers on their hands and major damage to their reputation after the story hit the news first locally, then nationally. Since the dealership didn't have $2 million lying around to pay out, they decided to give everyone a $5 Walmart gift card consolation prize instead. Back in the 80s, when Yellow Pages were the only place people could turn to find goods and services, Gloria Quinnen, owner of California's Banner Travel Agency, learned firsthand what happens when someone hits a wrong key and nobody notices. Banner Travel specialized in exotic travel, the Pacific Bell Phone Company printed it as erotic travel instead. We offer exotic travel, like tours of the Amazon, but nothing erotic, said Quinnen in a press release. Her older clientele, who were the bulk of her business, stopped calling. That didn't mean the phone didn't ring. Oh, it rang all right. But what people were asking for, Quinin did not offer. Her attorney filed a $10 million lawsuit on her behalf, claiming she had lost 80% of her clientele because of the mistake. Normally, typo-based lawsuits fail, but Quinnen eventually won her lawsuit based on the mental anguish the typo had caused. No company is invulnerable to typos, even if they've been around for generations. Such is the sad tale of Taylor & Sons, a 124-year-old family-owned engineering business in Britain that was killed by an extra S, which cost 250 employees their jobs. In 2015, officials at Companies House in Cardiff, the UK's Registrar of Companies, announced that the company Taylor & Son, singular, was failing. Someone added an S and announced the liquidation of Taylor & Son's plural instead. Although the mistake was quickly corrected within a few days, the hit to Taylor & Sons' reputation proved fatal. To make matters worse, the company's managing director was on vacation at the time, causing clients and creditors to believe he'd fled the country as the company collapsed. In less than three weeks, Taylor & Sons lost the majority of its clients, and its suppliers canceled their contracts, forcing the company into bankruptcy just two months later. Taylor & Sons sued the company's house. The British High Court later ruled that the government registrar was directly responsible for the collapse of the company and awarded them £8.8 million, with the tab going to the British taxpayers since the company's house was a government entity. Not every typo results in a lose-lose situation, though. One person's loss can be another person's gain. An eBay user posted an auction for his rare bottle of Alsop's Arctic Ale, brewed in 1852 and perfectly preserved. If you see pictures, it really does not look like a 150-year-old bottle. The museum-quality artifact of historical hooch should have fetched a small fortune, and it might well have if the poster had spelled the name correctly. Alsop's is spelled with two P's the seller only used one when enthusiasts search for the name spelled correctly as you would do this listing didn't come up but one lucky or clever soul found the out of the way listing and won against a single other buyer buying the bottle for 304 dollars extra sad because the starting price was 299 dollars eight weeks later this lucky buyer listed the same bottle on ebay spelled correctly and raked in half a million dollars. Before you get too excited about scavenging eBay with common misspellings to try to win your fortune, this was more than a decade ago and search technology has greatly improved. Speaking of making money on searches, Google could be making as much as half a billion dollars annually from the registered owners of website addresses that are spelled almost like the websites people are actually trying to reach. Known as typo squatting, Harvard University researchers Tyler Moore and Benjamin Edelman estimate that Google could be making millions from the practice because its network of display ads, of which they get some of the profits, runs on the typoed sites. They used a list of common spelling mistakes to generate another list of possible typo domains from the 3,264 most popular .com websites, as determined by Alexa.com rankings. With help from some software, the researchers crawled 285,000 of some 900,000 misspelled sites to estimate what revenue the domains are generating. Scale up those results and you're looking at some serious coin. Looking at the top 100,000 sites and estimating 0.7% are typo squatting sites, they estimate typo domains receive collectively more than 68 million visitors a day. If these typo domains were treated as a single website, that site would be ranked by Alexa as the 10th most popular website in the world it would be more popular in unique daily visitors than Twitter or Amazon. The researchers estimate that almost 60% of those sites have ads supplied by Google. With some quick back-of-the-envelope math, that amounts to $497 million a year in ad revenue. It's Google's policy to remove ads from these misspelled domains if the owner of the original site complains. But the article I read didn't reference how often that actually happens. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Multiple theories have emerged surrounding the failure of Mariner One, largely stemming from a bevy of reports produced in the aftermath, some official, some pretty speculative. But the most commonly cited explanation, directly from Mariner One's post-flight review board, is that a lone, quote, dropped hyphen or overbar in the computer code was all it took to remind them of the subtle distinction between landing and impact. In his 1968 nonfiction book, The Promise of Space, Arthur C. Clarke memorialized the typo as the most expensive hyphen in history. And it may well be. We'll save the $120 million lost on a failure to do metric conversions for another day. Remember, you can always find the source links and the script for the show at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well look no further and join me Katie Charlewood your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight and of course women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now the history podcast that's not your history class listen wherever you get your podcasts.